Hello, you are listening to The Power of Investing in People with Shay Sparks. I had the honor of being on the show with Shay and wow, how authentic she is and how much I know that she wants to keep hope alive in the community. So thank you all for joining. And everyone here today, I'm offering a special to all active duty or retired military to my all access on-demand training where we learn how to dream, believe, and achieve our best life. Please visit at timlanefitness.com and I'll see you all soon. Enjoy the show. Ben Schwartz shares his four pillars of leadership, trust, ownership, failure, and development. He shares his journey on how life has many twists and turns. And along the way, he began working at Tesla government and how each one of those twists and turns will bring you closer to your purpose and build you up to be a stronger leader. Stay tuned to his inspiring story. You won't want to miss it. Welcome to the Power of Investing in People podcast. I am your host, Shay Sparks, Chief Excitement Officer of Sparks of Fire International, where we get you fired up about your life and business by transforming trauma into treasure. Check out my new co-author collaborative book called Hashtag Firestarters, How to Be a Spark of Hope in the Midst of Change on my website, shaysparks.com. And while you're there, I invite you to connect with me on all the social media links like Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and even YouTube. And today I'm so excited to have our guest, Ben Schwartz. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks, Shay. It's great to be here. So Ben, so we met via, I believe, how did we meet? We were plugged in by Yoko, who is a a great company that we work with that was interested in uh, finding opportunities for great minds to collaborate on discussing leadership and and building teams. Awesome. Well, thank you. Shout out to Yoko. Thank you for connecting us. And for those of you who don't know, Ben Swartz is a program manager and director of department and state engagements in is it Tesla government? No. The government. Yeah. Tesla government. It is Tesla government. Okay. So he joined in 2014 and moved into the director of content position where his portfolios include content creation, development, data management, and research methodologies, as well as strategic relationship building. And that is what I really want to talk about. So Ben, I always like to start off with the first question of what does investing in people mean to you? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what investing in people means to me at, at a really high level is building a team of individuals that can really contribute to your mission and add value by bringing their unique skill sets in ways that you may not necessarily have thought of or perceived of so that you can really work to accomplish your mission. And I think as I sort of thought about what, how do you actually break that down? And I thought that there were sort of four main pillars in my mind, which were Trust, basically, you got to be able to trust people. Mm -hmm. And you always want to have a team that you trust implicitly. The second is ownership. I think it's really important to be able to give people ownership of their work 
it helps them develop, breed confidence, and really stay motivated. The third for me is failure. I think being able to let people fail safely is so important for growth, which basically sort of leads to the fourth one, which is development, making sure that people have the opportunities to grow. Obviously, there's a ton that goes into all of those pieces, but those are four sort of broad buckets that I thought about that that sort of encapsulate investing in people for me. Wow, what an incredible (laughs) answer. I absolutely love that. And you basically did your research because that normally is uh, off the cuff type of answer. And that answer was beautiful. Trust, ownership, failure, and development. So I'm just going to say, let's just dive into the first one you talked about was trust. And you said about adding value as a contribution. So my question is, how would a leader really develop trust from their team? How would you suggest they go about that? Sure. So I think there's a couple aspects because trust is, it's a two-way street, right? It's especially for a leader. And I think that it has to start with the leader modeling that they're trustworthy and showing that they trust their team members before their team members can trust them. I think that starts with a couple of things. One is fairness. Obviously, Mm -hmm. you have to be fair, you have to be impartial, and your team members have to understand that your decisions are coming from a place of what's best for the team and what's best for them. I think another important aspect is people trust you when you trust them. So being able to point to your team members, and this gets a little bit into the ownership piece, but sort of saying, I believe in you and I believe in the work that you're doing and I don't need to micromanage you. I'm going to set goals for you. And I trust that you as a professional will do you know, what you need to reach those goals. But as you do that, you may know a way that's better than me to achieve them. And I'm happy to help, but I trust that you'll get there. And I've found that with that process, a lot of times that enables people to bring different perspectives and apply different talents to problems that you may not have thought of. And I think that really builds a more diverse and effective team. Well, you said a key word there at the very end about building. So For me, I feel like you hit the nail on the head about example. We lead by example. And if you are that leader that is do as I say, not as I do, right, you're going to lose trust from your team. So going with that spirit, what if you lose trust from your team? Is there a way to rebuild back that trust? And what would your piece of advice to someone listening to this to do that? How how they go about rebuilding? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So I've found that on teams that I've been on, whenever there's a loss of trust, a lot of times it comes from that dynamic of do as I say, not as I do. Mm-hmm. And there's, a, I love the this saying that an old boss of mine had, and I've taken it to heart, which is everybody cleans toilets. On this team, everyone has to be willing to do what it takes to keep something running. There's no job that nobody can't do. 
on the team, right? Mm -hmm. And what I've found is that when there are teams that break down, a lot of times it comes from leaders being unwilling to sort of roll up their sleeves and do the hard work and get get dirty, do what you have to do, whether it's if it's I mean, for me, like previous work I've done, like on on farms is like digging a fence. But now I work on now I work in software design. So what's that mean on our for us, like coding data, going through huge spreadsheets, like if there's a deadline, and you got to get something done, everybody has to jump in and do that work. Now, of course, you have to be you have to be smart. You shouldn't have a CEO that's always coding data, right? Mm-hmm. But when something needs to be done, that I think is when leading by example is so critical. And I think that if you lose trust, that taking a step back and taking stock of how am I contributing to the mission and am I doing everything that I'm asking my team to do? That is so true. It's really, for me, what you're saying to sum it up is really about being transparent, right? And really saying, and it brings us to the next one of owning. Yeah, I may have messed up, but I'm willing to do the work. I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and and get in there, whether that's coding or cleaning the toilets. Or in my situation, I am also a salon owner and a hairstylist. So at one point I worked for a salon, a corporate salon, and the CEO is sweeping hair. And it's like, oh, well, if he can sweep hair, then you know you can trust him and respect him and all of that. And take ownership, right? So if he can do that, then so can I. Which brings us to your next pillar, which I love that you mentioned, is ownership. And I think there's a, sometimes there can be a lack of ownership in upper management or leadership teams. It seems as if they have kind of lost the passion and the purpose, the mission of the company, and they're there to collect a paycheck. So there are team members who then, you know, kind of mimic and mirror that type of characteristic, right? And so how do you build or how could you build? What is something that you would would really, you have seen or you have experienced yourself where ownership is not just the top owner, the literally the CEO, that it is a team effort to have ownership? Totally. Absolutely. I think that what you're talking about, I mean, think how demotivating it's, it is when you work on something and someone else says, oh, that's mine. I, I built that and I'm going to take credit for it. Right. Or how demotivating it is when you come up with new ideas and they're just sort of shot down because it's not the idea of your manager. I think that what how ownership can lead to that organizational motivation at every level is by finding areas of work, whether it's processes, projects, different types of, in our world, data, finding specific areas where people can be thought leaders, where they not only can be sort of thought leaders, but where they can lead implementation and effort and really bring their unique skills to bear. For instance, when I first took over the director of content role in my previous position, I was overseeing a lot of regional team leads. 
And I had previously been a regional team lead and it was quite a learning experience for me because I didn't give people that level of ownership. I thought coming in, I was like, okay, well, I was a team lead and I got promoted. That means that my way of leading the team was the best way to do it. And so I came in and I looked at how all these people were working on stuff and I proposed all these tweaks. I said, we should really try and do it this way. And what I neglected as a first time manager was really going back to that first pillar, right? I neglected to trust that people were doing things for a reason, that the these were professionals, that they were really smart and oftentimes managing completely different situations than the one that I had as a leader of a team. And it wasn't until I took a step back and I was like, what, what is going on? And looking at it and sitting down and talking to people and understanding that they needed to own their workflows. That really what needed to happen was I needed to establish sort of clear goals and say, these areas and your work better than I do. Here's where we need to get to make it happen and say, here's the left and right bounds. Here's where we can't go. But all that space in the middle, that's for you to navigate. And I think that once I did that, the team as a whole was so much more effective and so much more innovative Mm -hmm. because it suddenly now people were trying out all this, all these cool new methods of conducting research, cool new data visualizations, cool new projects that they could also then learn from each other and made the whole team a lot better. I've taken that and, and that, that idea of ownership of giving people their domains and staying aware of what's going on, but trusting them to really own it and develop within those domains. Yeah. So you're really investing in their strengths. Yeah. And then allowing them to shine in the areas that they naturally shine in rather than focusing on what they're not good at and trying to make them better. You're just giving them a platform, a space for them to really just be their true authentic self and who they are, how they show up naturally. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great way to put it and encouraging, encouraging that those ideas of where people are going to be naturally inclined to to go and naturally inclined to sort of deploy their strength. Yeah. I was just having a conversation with a professional organizer and she's like, yeah, we look at um, each person's SWOT analysis. And I was like, absolutely. Why wouldn't you look at their strengths, right? And their weaknesses and see where you need the actual help rather than, well, as a team, we all need help in this, but you, somebody might be better than that than others. So I love how you're breaking it down individually. And I just read this book, which is so apropos to the conversation. It's called, it's, it's about who, not how. And instead of taking the task and really trying to take a whole team and be like, here's the task, get it done. You're really focusing on who's best, whose strengths are automatically in this task, who can make this happen in such a way that it gives them joy because they're fulfilling their own purpose. And it gives you joy because you're the the leader literally giving them work to do that is meaningful and purposeful and gives them, yeah, it gives them joy. So beautifully, beautiful. I love that. Yeah. And I would say that the other really important point 
that goes back to ownership from what you were saying there is that you can, it's really important that when someone owns something, that they also own the, the outcomes and positive effects of it. And that when you as a leader are messaging successes of your program up, that you never forget to call out explicitly the people who, who made it happen. And I think that there can be such a strong sort of incentive to take ownership of successes in your own team without sort of explaining who was involved or assigning attribution to it. But in terms of keeping people motivated, like that's the biggest thing. People like you, people need to get recognition for their great work from if you're like a middle manager from upper management, if you're an upper manager from like clients being able, and it doesn't take a lot of effort to say, Hey, this person was, they really led the effort on this and they did such a great job. And I think that oftentimes makes people more confident Mm -hmm. in you as a leader, like externally, because it shows that you have a really strong team that's working on whatever the problem that you're sort of the face of. Yeah, absolutely. And it really speaks to some people, not all people, but some people really need recognition to feel as if they were a success. Which brings Mm -hmm. us to our next pillar is what you said is failure, fail safely. And if you are a person who that positive reinforcement of recognition is saying you didn't fail and you're not getting that, then the next skill comes in for me is to ask for what it is that you need, right? Is to ask for that recognition and be like, hey, what is... Can you tell me as a a team leader as how is it that I'm doing and where do you see me going? Because sometimes even the leader doesn't even see that they're not giving recognition because they get so, you know, caught in the day to day of the task being done, task being done, task being done, that they forget to put in those people skills and really build the rapport with their team. Totally. I think that's a hundred percent true. And I think one of the things that I found that's really helpful for making sure that you don't forget that is whenever I bring on a new team member, I always set out a three, six and 12 month roadmap. And Mm -hmm. at high level, like here are the goals that we're working towards. Here are some hard number metrics that sort of feed into those goals. And we're going to do check-ins at these time periods. And it can be simple stuff, right? It can be things like, okay, I'm bringing on a new project manager. I want you to be able to lead by six months. You should have led three clients that monthly client status. Mm -hmm. Easy. That's an easy one. It can be more squishy, right? It can be, all right, you have business development as part of your portfolio. You should have by one year, you should have been able to work on a number of proposals and be involved in the proposal process. So I think that's setting those milestones that are independent of the day-to-day grind, which there's always more work to do, right? So you have to be very mindful, I think, about setting those pillars. And I found that to be really helpful for setting those expectations for people and giving a larger framework of, well, how am I doing? (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah. it's not always, a, a lot of times people don't always get feedback on this. Well, and you, yes, you just said that key phrase right there is you don't always get feedback. Feedback is so underrated. And I think that allows us, like you said, to fail safely. So how is it that you have or that you can create a, a space like we have been talking about in order that failure is accepted rather than looked down upon? Great question. So I think the really important aspect of that is as a leader, you need to find opportunities for your team members to work on projects that sort of both push them, but where their failure is not damaging to the mission. And I think that there's some a couple benefits of that. The first is that it breeds a sense of security. And I think people are not going to be effective workers if they're not secure, mm-hmm. right? They need to know that they're supported. And the best way to show that is if they fail, right? If they fail at a task that the approach is, okay, what happened and how do we get better as opposed to like punishment or annoyance or an approach that is focused on the negative outcomes. And I think as a leader, what's important is being able to understand what your team member's strengths are and then translate that to the work that you have in front of you and just actively look for places where you can put people in those positions that align with their skill sets, but where they may not know everything that's going to come. But that's okay. That's okay. But, you know, be smart, right? You don't want to put them in front of a big client meeting if it's someone that's only been with you for three weeks and it's a major presentation. But maybe after the presentation and you're doing sort of a scoping call or something like that, you can enable them to say, hey, I put together this mock-up. What do you think? And it's in more of a, a working environment as opposed to a pitch environment. So finding those opportunities where people can fail safely I think builds that sense of security within within the team. I love that. And I love that you use the word opportunity because that's literally what I use as a leader. That's what I call failures is learning opportunity, not yes. failures. And then it gives you a space like we've been talking about really creating that space, which brings us to our last pillar that you mentioned was development. It brings you space to figure out how can you learn? What is it that they need to learn? And how is it that they need to move forward that will benefit them and us as the team leader, but also them as personally and professionally? What is so fascinating to me is how there's a group of people that think, failure is the end all be all and they've messed up and they're going to get fired. And that inner negative voice takes over the fear, takes over of the unknown uncertainty. And now they're like constantly in their head or there's the other side that sees it as an opportunity and ask, okay, so what do I need to do this better next time? So it goes back to that book mindset. It's either growth or it's fixed, right? And so they're the ones who are focused on the growth. It's like, well, let's dive in. Let's like dig through the pieces and let's figure it out how to move forward. Where there's so many that are like afraid. And that's where I come as a coach is really kind of help them sift through their fear on how their fear shows up to even ask those clarifying questions of what is it that I can do better? So 
as a leader, how do you help those when you see that fixed mindset that they're looking at their failure as themselves being a failure, right? How do you go about building them up and developing them into the success that you know them to their potential to be? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that when that situation arises, the first thing that I think is so important to recognize is that I come at that first with that's a failure of my leadership Mm -hmm. if they're feeling that way. And so the very first thing is thinking about, okay, what do I need to do to provide them with clear goals and the tools to move forward and first approaching it from there. And then I think as you move into it, what you're able to do is build out a structure of feedback where they can see demonstrable progress, where they can see how they're being successful and where it's very clear to them in terms of the goals of the organization, how their work is slotting into that directly and moving the whole organization forward. And I think that if you can set those structures up, people that gets people out of that mindset of like, all right, am I, am I doing something that's helping? Is what I'm doing, does it actually matter? And one of the key things that I think you really want to be able to do is in in our world, in, in sort of software, a lot of times it's hard to sort of see the outcomes, right? So like, all right, I put together this this data visualization or I set up this workflow and this process and we delivered it to the client, right? Yes, and then you wait. And then you wait and maybe you get feedback, maybe you don't. What I've found to be really useful in those situations is when someone has like spent all this time grinding, putting something together that's really cool that you deliver to the client, being able to like even bring that person in on a meeting with the client is mm-hmm. super helpful and hear how the client, not even necessarily the client saying, wow, this is the best tool ever, but just saying like, here's how we're using it. And like, it can be a working meeting and they're saying, okay, we worked with our, we used this data visualization to coordinate with our team at Embassy X and we were able to move these projects forward. And now we're going to be inputting this data from it and it'll be sending out that way. And to them, it's just sort of, okay, day-to-day work, whatever. For the person that built that tool, that's like, wow, this is something that's being used to create value. And and I think that is really what people, what really keeps people motivated is knowing that the work they're doing is making a difference. Yes. So what you just said was intention matters. Yeah. So if they show up as having an intention of doing work that matters, making a difference in this company's world, making the world a better place, right? Then the outcome, whether it's a hundred percent accepted, quote unquote, from the, the client is really about how they chose to show up in that moment. And then they get that recognition from themselves rather than seeking it from you or the outcome. And they're not attached to the outcome, right? They just am able to pat themselves on the back and recognize their own and acknowledge their own amazing work and go, I'm good. 
I'm here to move forward. I'm confident because of what I chose to do, not what was put upon me and had the expectation of, because I know I showed up the best way, my true authentic self, because it's about the service. Oh yeah. That's a great way. That is a great way to put it. Yeah. I think that's totally right. That the feeling of contributing to something and knowing that what you're doing is adding value to people is that's how you stay motivated and making sure that people know what value they're adding is right. Like that's how leaders keep their teams motivated. Totally agree. Totally agree. Well, Ben, we have just dived in and like (laughs) dug through some amazing deep stuff here already. And I just want to like kind of talk to you about you for a minute. So take us back to Ben, when you were growing up, was there a defining moment that that you knew, or even not even in growing up, maybe it was a a school or a mentor or another leader that you knew that you either wanted to be like, or you knew that you wanted to be the complete opposite because they were so bad. Was there a defining moment for you? I don't know that there was a defining moment, but there were a couple leaders. I think that from a professional perspective and sort of where I've gone in in my life, my my previous boss was just a fantastic leader. We do a lot of work at my company with the military and obviously the government. He was a former civil affairs officer, former ranger, and he was the program manager on the program I, I previously worked on. And he was just fantastic. He was someone that I think really modeled how you build teams, how you trust people, how you keep everyone focused on the mission. And I think that I learned so much from his work that that I've taken forward and that I think about in terms of how do I want to build teams as I move through my career? Because as a leader, you're dependent on your team, right? Entirely. And I think that's really what he modeled was this idea of it's everything coming together that makes success. And that's the role of a leader is to sort of bring everything together and enable the team. In terms of like sort of a philosophical approach to how I approach my my career and how I approach team building, I played high school football. And I think my high school football coach was just the, I mean, he was, and and actually there were a number of them and they were, I think, very formative in, in approach, in how I approach even now building teams. And I think that when it comes to, to the pillar of failure, I think that they were instrumental in helping me understand how important failure is to growth. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was one of the reasons that, you know, that I think about failure as a tool so much. So, yeah, I would say those are sort of my two, my two big influences in sort of my philosophy on leadership. I love that. Thank you for sharing that story. And so you grew up playing football and now you're working for this amazing company. And so how did you get there? kind of a long and and winding path. So yeah. So you can give us the like minute and a half 
version, sure. right? I'll give the minute and a half. <laughs> I bounced around in, I went to college, I studied history and I studied brain and cognitive science because they were interesting. I worked a bunch of odd jobs after college and decided that I was, what I was really interested was international relations and international security. So I went to grad school for that and then worked a bunch in that field working with the government. And I was very much a sort of subject matter type guy. I worked a lot on, this was in the, the early 2010s. So on the Syrian civil war. I was working a lot on that, had very little software experience, but was working for a software company working on that type of stuff. But as I sort of rose at Tesla and continued to move up, what I became really passionate about was finding cool tools to help the government do its job. And that really is what I've evolved into is helping the people working on those issues and other issues that the government's working on do their jobs better because they are really working hard to create sort of a better life and a better world for all of us. And how can I help that mission by helping them do their jobs better. I love that. And you are such uh, so passionate about it. You can just tell. I know our listeners don't get to see it, but they'll be able to watch it at some point. But yes, you can just tell how passionate you are about the work that you do. And I think that it just speaks volumes on who you are as a person, but who you are as a leader. So thank you for sharing everything that you've shared with us today. Shay, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you so much for your kind words on that. Oh, you're, you're so welcome. So if people want to get in touch with you, they want to connect with you, maybe they want to work at Tesla, maybe they want you to come in and, and say, hey, come teach my group how to do that. How sure. can people connect with you? Yeah, the best way to find me is on LinkedIn and then you can find teslagov.com. Awesome. And tell us what does Tesla Gov do? What we do is we build knowledge and data management solutions for the U.S. government. Nice. So whether it's whether you're working in defense or at the Department of Commerce or wherever, um, we're here to help. Nice. And I know that you said so much information. We, I mean, I know that our listeners are taking notes because it was just such a great conversation. So I always like to leave with this question of what phrase, scripture, or mantra are you living by right now? I would say that it is that everybody cleans toilets, that you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and do the work. And that's what, that's what builds a strong team. I love that. Everybody cleans the toilets. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for being here today and for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom with us. So thank you. Thank you so much. All right. If you enjoyed today's episode, because I know you did, and you may even took some notes, please go over to the Apple podcast and give us a five-star review. That would really help us out. Until next time, we'll see you soon. Hey, don't turn this off just yet. Does the thought of collaborating and connecting with a diverse group of creative thought leaders appeal to you? Do you have a compelling story and don't know where to start? Have you ever thought about writing a book and thought about writing the whole book is overwhelming? Well, we are looking for you. We want to connect 
and collaborate with other podcasters, coaches, and entrepreneurs who want to gain exposure. We are looking for other people who want to co-author a book with us. You can find out more details at firestartersbookproject.com.